Hi everyone, my name is Josh and welcome to Quarren Teaching, Reconciling Change in Education During the Age of COVID-19. This podcast is intended to shed light on the successes and struggles of educators and students around the world during this sudden transition to online learning that so many of us are currently facing. Thanks for listening. A lot of students and teachers can be divided up into three categories. So the teachers and students who hate online learning for whatever reason, maybe they are uh, special education or they just don't work well with time management or they don't work well in front of a screen. And then you have a middle group who is totally fine, would be totally fine to stay online or would be great to go back to school. And then a third group who really misses being in class and having direct instruction face-to-face time with a teacher. So I think that really breaks down across students and educators in terms of like three categories that people are falling into. Today, we're speaking with a good friend of mine named Kate. Kate and I met at our fall 2012 orientation with EPIC, Korea's national English program, before we started teaching English in Daejeon, South Korea. We formed a tight-knit group along with our friends Daniel and Liz, and the four of us had our first reunion last summer while Kate was studying in Scotland. As Kate is about to tell you, she's currently working as a middle school teacher and a university instructor in New Jersey. My name is Kate Muldoon. I am currently an eighth grade ELA teacher, English language arts teacher, and I also teach a section of College Composition Two at Rowan University. Um, I've been teaching for about nine years now, since 2011. Um, I've done a variety of grades, so everywhere between sixth through higher ed, so in, up to and including college seniors. I've taught abroad for a year in South Korea. I earned my master's degree um, last spring. So currently an educator, a student not too long ago. Okay. And what what do you do? And so can you tell us a little bit more about, you said you're teaching at a middle school and also one class at a university? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about those courses that you're teaching and I guess about your experiences at those institutions? Pre-pandemic? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So before the pandemic, the eighth grade um, that I teach, I've been there for six years and I teach a variety of sections. So I'll do BSI, like basic skills instruction with a co-teacher. I'll also do some inclusion classes, so mixed between special ed and regular ed, and then I'll also have some just regular ed middle-of-the-road classes as well. Um, At the university, this is my second semester teaching College Composition 2, which is primarily a writing class course, whereas my eighth grade is a blend of, you know, reading, writing, public speaking. Where would you fall in among those three categories? I would say I'm middle of the road just because I'm 30 and I've been teaching for since I was 21, essentially. So I'm really good with technology. Like Google Classroom was not a hard transition for me because it's already something that I utilize in my regular classroom just to supplement a little bit of technology. 
but I certainly work with teachers who had no idea how to set up a Google Classroom, didn't know how to get students to join. And it got to the point where I was, I took over their accounts and kind of just uploaded their assignments and then gave it back to them. And I've just been walking them through it step by step. Um, <clears throat> so for me, it hasn't been that much of an adjustment beyond not seeing the students face to face. But of course, I would love to go back because you want to have that interaction with students. That's really probably why most people become teachers. Can you like identify or are there any sort of um, differences in demographics among those three groups that you identified? Um, no, but within oh. any school district, obviously you have varying demographics, but I don't necessarily think that a student's background in this scenario is affecting how they are performing with remote learning because I have some students who are lower income, maybe not a great family support, but they are finding a way to make it work. So one student in particular, it's him and then he has three siblings and there's one iPad that all four have to share. And then also mom is there and she needs the iPad as well. And so what they've done is just totally arranged a schedule. So between the hours of nine to 10 a.m., mom will have the iPad 10 to 12 my student will have it and they just really divided it up. And so I think it's not so much about demographic as it is just resiliency right now. Yeah. Okay. But um, those three categories of teachers that yeah. you mentioned, right? That was specifically teachers that you were. I think it's teachers about? and students. Okay. Well then uh, among the, teachers then do you think there are any demographic differences with uh, between those three groups age that would be the biggest thing that divides i think um but even then you have some anomalies so the science teacher i work with is about 70 years old and she's really great with technology um, the other ela teacher mm. i work with is about 40 and she is like technology illiterate. So I've really just been posting stuff on Google Classroom and then she'll, she will just repost what I've done. So it's an interesting time because you, you would think that these kinds of like demographic factors would influence and to a certain extent they do, but I think it's more just like individual to individual. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was kind of getting at. I mean, um you know, I suspect that in general, older teachers and older professors are probably having a more difficult time on average with this transition. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it does just come down to like one's individual uh, comfort and experiences with technology and using educational technology. Um, Moreover, but I'm, I mean, mm -hmm. I think subject matter really changes as well because the way that you approach like English going digital is a lot different than the way you would have to approach math going digital. Yeah, absolutely. So have you found that teachers of certain subjects then have had an easier transition? Like, I mean, for example, is, is, are, is math, do you, in your opinion, is math an easier subject to uh, teach online versus English or English literature? Oh, 100%. Because what the math teachers at my school do is one hour, like an allotted amount of time where they will go over the lesson, um, go over practice problems, things like that. 
and then the students have to do the work on their own. Whereas for English, it's not that simple, especially with writing, because you have to be able to give feedback. Um, you have to be able to point to things in an essay and say, here's where you need to revise. Here's where you did something really great. And that becomes a lot more challenging when you're not actually seeing the student face to face. kind of want to focus a little bit on the your your experience with um, the middle school the eighth graders first perhaps uh, can you tell us what like maybe an average lesson is like you said you you focus the, or the, the name of the course is called it said basic skills well it's just one section within so you could have regular ed you could have basic skills led. Uh, um, we used to have advanced, they got rid of that. So we don't have anything like honors or AP, nothing like that. But yeah, I mean, a normal class, we have blocked classes. So two 40 minute um, sections, which ends up being, you know, 80 minutes. Um, and generally speaking, depending on what we're working on, It'll either be half the time reading, half the time writing. So like 40 minutes of reading, 40 minutes of writing. If we're in the process of writing, maybe revision, the whole period could be dedicated to writing and workshopping. Um, if we're in the middle of reading something specific, the whole 80 minutes could maybe go to reading and reading activities. But generally it's a pretty good blend of reading and writing. Okay, and so how much then were were you also assigning reading and writing outside of the class for homework right now yeah we well i mean prior prior to the pandemic oh prior no well we would have writing assignments but because it's eighth grade a lot of them are still learning how to construct an essay independently so a lot of writing assignments are done in class um, and really the only homework for writing would be if a student didn't finish an essay in class for the allotted amount of time, but we would never really give a writing assignment and say this is due in a week because graders just aren't there yet. Okay, so sort of um, specifically then with an essay structure, they're still unfamiliar with it and maybe they also have not quite developed like task management skills, like knowing exactly what is expected of them in kind of the genre of essay writing? Definitely both. Uh, yeah. So before the pandemic, we were in the process of just finishing up our first argumentative essay of the year. And before you do that, you have to go into how to cite sources. So we taught MLA, um, formatting in-text citations, work cited lists, and that's really difficult to learn for the first time. So we would have moved into a second argumentative essay that was a lot more independent where kids had to complete their own research, cite sources correctly, embed them within their essay correctly, having it modeled once prior. But now because there's no good way to really like meet with students one-on-one, -on -one, really going to have to rethink how to approach writing in the post-pandemic. Right. So I guess let's let's just jump there right now. So um, 
tell us a little bit about how the because you well first of all so all, all of your courses now are 100% online is that yes, right? Yes that's correct. Okay so how has that course um, how has that course transitioned to online? It's I would imagine that with a course that is with a heavy emphasis on reading and writing, especially in the classroom and building those skills like essay writing, argumentative essay writing, uh, that is probably quite a difficult transition, but perhaps not. So would you give us a little bit of insight into that? Yeah, it was definitely initially a very rocky transition. And a lot of that was because there was no clear directive from our administration, which to a certain extent is no fault of their own because there's no clear direction from the governor of New Jersey, and then going beyond that, I mean, even just the country in general. So what initially happened was when we left, our administration said give hard copies of everything for two weeks, because initially it was 14 days that we were going to be out of school. So we gave everybody a hard copy of, we're currently reading the Diary of Anne Frank as a play, the adaptation. So we gave everybody a hard copy of that and a packet of work. And then direction changed and administration said, actually, you need to be posting everything digitally so you can give feedback in real time. So you post an assignment and the next day you give them feedback on what they're working on. So then I had to work on digitalizing everything that we had given the students. Um, and then that has kind of leveled out where every day I post a daily agenda on Google Classroom. Usually it has like one to three items that include reading, vocabulary, comprehension questions, they'll submit that by the end of the day. And then I will look at that, give feedback the following day. And so now it's just kind of become more of a routine and cycle for both teachers and students. To, to what extent were you and teachers using educational technology before the pandemic? But I used it yeah. a decent amount, like in terms of essays, I don't have students print essays. I don't have hard copies anymore. Everything is always submitted through Google Classroom. So in terms of my personal students, readiness and com comfortability with submitting through Classroom online, that was that was pretty high. And then even for me grading an essay online, I'm, I was very comfortable with that as well. Whereas I think a lot of other teachers really struggled to know how to give feedback digitally and not have that one-on-one -on -one component, that one-on-one -on -one element. So I think it's nice right. to mix stuff up um, for students and for me. So I would use, I would do, if, if I had Chromebooks, like if we were a one-on-one -on -one school, I would probably use technology every day. But because we share two carts between six teachers, um, I would say that I probably do something with technology maybe like once a week. All right. Well, I'd like to talk more about, you, you've mentioned Google Classroom and briefly, I think we mentioned Blackboard earlier. Um, so it sounds like Google Classroom is used with your middle school students and then is Blackboard used at the, um, with the university course that you teach? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Which, which do you find um, has been, I don't know, um, maybe more usable, like has better utility for do, for teaching like 100% online courses? I think overall, Google Classroom is more, it's certainly more user-friendly. 
So you could hop on Google Classroom and be pretty familiar with things within a half hour, whereas Blackboard, you have to definitely sift through a little bit more to find what you're looking for. Um, Google is just also so connected with things like Google Meet, Google Hangout now, where you can just hop on with a student. If they're struggling to find something, you flip your screen. Whereas Blackboard really doesn't have that kind of option. So you'd have to do like a Zoom call. You'd have to supplement it with something else. Whereas Google Classroom really is sort of, it could stand on its own. Right. Okay. Um, and so you mentioned a couple of the features of, of Google Classroom that you can, it's, it has an integrated video conferencing technology because of Google Hangouts. Is there anything else that has made Google Classroom really beneficial for this transition? Yeah, also if you decide to, you can utilize Google Forms for self-assessing assignments. So if you like a multiple choice, mm -hmm it grades itself and then all you would have to do is import the grades. So it really saves you a lot of time when you're teaching hundred students that you don't have to look through a multiple choice um, assessment and go over every single one. Um, you could also use Google Slides and do a voice recording over it if you wanted. Um, you could do that with Blackboard as well. That's what I've been doing for the university is I'll just run through a Google Slides and record it with QuickTime. Um, but again, it's still utilizing a Google feature. So it's like an outside supplemental, uh, thing for Blackboard, whereas Google, it's just built in. Right. Are there any other, uh, pieces or types of educational technology that you're using beyond like Google Classroom and like the affiliated Google technology, like docs and forms? Uh, and slides um, that that you've kind of integrated into your online teaching practice? I mean, there's so many that it almost, I was thinking about this the other day, actually yesterday, because I did a webinar with Stockton that was supposed to be talking about like online tools that you could use right now. Um, and I use them all, well, especially when we're in the classroom just to mix it up. But right now, uh, there's a lot of teachers using like Quizlet, Quizzes, Kahoot, um, there's any number we currently supplement with common lit, which is a bit like read theory, which is ultimately like passages of text that you can find on different topics. And then it asks the students to digitally annotate or make marks on the actual text, which is great because obviously not being face to face, you can't give students something and have them annotate it or close read it, which is essential skill with right. reading. So just finding things that will supplement, but will never really take the place of actually being in a physical classroom in terms of instruction. Right. Okay. So what was that called again? Common yeah. lit? Or there's like read theory, there's read works. There's so many that exist that it's just a matter of finding out what your personal preference is. After this, I asked Kate how she handles teaching skills like annotating and if she uses screencasting technology for teaching skills such as that. I personally use QuickTime because I have a Mac, so it's already built in where you can just set it up to record the screen and audio, and I'll just run through things with the mouse and, and speak over them and kind of run through like a Google slideshow or a PowerPoint and give directions that way. But I think 
math teachers are doing the math teachers I work with anyway are doing like Zoom or Desmos and that lets you record it lets you present it and then also record it. So they'll do that in real time and then also it's posted so students who for whatever reason couldn't attend the session can look at it when they are able to. And that must be more okay. hands-on because you'd have to be doing math problems in real time. Right. Okay. Wow. Um, okay. So it sounds like you've been able, and maybe your colleagues have also been able to use technology to replace, I mean, maybe not replace to, maybe not be, uh, to replace at the level that would be satisfactory in, um, compared to, you know, in-person classes, but it sounds like for the most part, you and your colleagues have been able to find educational technology that has replaced um, most of what happens within the classroom. So with assessment, with communication, um, would, would you say that's accurate or have you found that there are major gaps um, that this transition has caused that you've not been able to find educational technology to I replace. think for everything that you do in the classroom, there is educational technology that can replace it. But going back to the three groups that students and teachers will fall into, it can't account for those, um, those students who just don't take to technology or digital, digital apps. And also there are a lot of students who just feel like they need the face-to-face -face time in order to feel motivated, in order to manage their time. That's probably more for the university students. I have a lot of students who are struggling to um, balance like, social, emotional, mental health with their academia. Yeah. Oh, okay, so that's one thing I kind of wanted to talk about later, but um, you've, you've brought it up. So have you been, I, I know like a lot of students and teachers as well are, you know, dealing with a lot of the stress of the transition, but also like the, the anxiety and um, uncertainty and other emotions and, you know, psychological factors that are making this time difficult for everybody. Um, so have you been supporting your students or maybe even your colleagues in ways, um, emotionally or psychologically? And if so, how? Yeah, um, certainly the students, at least in terms of the university, I think they're struggling much more because if you are taking six, six courses and all six go online, it becomes extremely overwhelming where you literally don't do anything in a day except for look at a screen. And then if you do decide to walk away from the screen, then you kind of get a lot of anxiety about the work that you should be completing while you're doing something else. But honestly, there's only so much time that you can spend in front of a screen. So with them, I've just been accommodating in terms of flexibility with deadlines, um, due dates, modifying assignments as best I can. Um, and then in terms of the eighth grade I work at, I'm just fortunate that my team of teachers 
gets along really well. So we've been supporting each other and anything one person is feeling in the group, somebody else is feeling. So it's just nice to have that kind of outlet with a group of people who really understand what you are experiencing. Um, with the eighth grade students, I don't think it's as challenging for some of them as it is for university students because they're still living with mom and dad and ultimately their role in the family is not as extreme as some of my university students who have said I had to get a second job to help support my family for my parents who were laid off, things like that. So with eighth grade, we had them keep a journal every day that they would just submit digitally. We said you could create a blog, but I don't think kids know what blogs are anymore. So yeah, <laughs> so it was just like a daily check-in, but a lot of them um, have said that they miss school or they won't take school for granted. So that was really interesting. And it's also interesting because it's been about six mm. weeks. Tomorrow will be six weeks since we left. And you've also seen the mindset of a lot of those students change from initially thinking it was really great. I can sit around and just play video games or watch Netflix all day. And now they're getting worried because they're going to miss like end of the year activities. So they always have like a big dinner dance. They have field day. They have an eighth grade trip. And so you can kind of see the mentality start to shift, not only with students, right? I guess just with everybody thinking that, oh, it's two weeks. Well, it's two more weeks. Now it's two more weeks. And now it's like for the foreseeable future. I think that's a great idea to ask your students to write a kind of a, a self, a self check-in, I guess, um, especially with students that young who may not be like the best at processing their emotions and kind of processing what is ha happening, you know? Um, and so I think that, yeah, that's really great because I think that not only does that give you feedback in terms of maybe how you could maybe manage your class a little bit differently or uh, give a little bit more support to your students in different ways, but then it also asks the students to be self-reflective and to think about um yeah to think about their own emotions and how they're dealing with their own yeah emotions. the journal was functioning at a lot of different levels because like you're saying it, it helps them kind of think about what they're feeling or experiencing and at the same time it does provide me with that one-on-one -on -one check in that you get in school because you can just see if a student is feeling off or something's going on but you can't do that online so when every student is submitting a journal and you read through each one then you do get an idea of what's going on and if some of them are struggling or some of them are thriving. Some of them were like, I love digital. I don't want to go back. Oh, wow. What, what, what percentage, I mean, just ballpark, uh, would you say were in that category that they love the online learning and they Probably don't want to go back? 10%, not a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned earlier this, there's been a change in the students attitude toward online learning and their change in attitude toward being at home um has has this affected their motivation i mean have you have you seen like motivated previously motivated students become unmotivated or have maybe even the opposite have you seen unmotivated students become more motivated you said that you also mentioned i think earlier something about um or you, you, you implied something about students lacking, some students lacking self-direction. That may have been at the university course. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, can you, can you give us a bit more about that? Yeah, I think you have both. You have high achieving. Well, high achieving students will always be high achieving. 
but more like middle of the road or lower, lower achieving students. Some of those students have really stepped up and are doing better with digital learning than they do with regular school. And that could maybe have something to do with like school hours, being able to do work in a place where you um, maybe feel more comfortable or you're less distracted with social interactions. It's probably a lot of the social because since that's removed, you don't have you don't have anything to do. Like if you're a 13 year old student student right now, like a 13 year old child, you can't go out anywhere. You can't see your friends. And so what are you left with to do? I mean, I guess play video games and watch Netflix or make TikToks, but there's so many hours in a day that you can do that. So now I think those students are sort of almost like resorting to schoolwork, to keep them feeling a little bit of like normalcy. Yeah. But I definitely have a student who right. is working full time, um, which I'm not, I'm not sure the legal legalities of that, but like, yeah. Yeah. yeah he's, well, he's working, working at a market, full-time. like, um, like a small mom and pop grocery store during, during the day. Like I've had coworkers go mm-hmm. and see him there. And so he is obviously not focusing on academics at all because he's, he's working. So you get like a whole spectrum and it's wow. hard because you can't see the kid face to face and you can't really give them that like motivational talk. Um, Doesn't like a, a, a motivational talk would just not have, I, I, I feel like it wouldn't have the same resonance. Like if you just, you know, sent them an email right. or something. But I also think there's a lot of teachers who are reaching, trying to reach students on their own level. So teachers who are making like, TikToks or Snapchats or Instagram and pushing out information through those kinds of platforms as a relatively young teacher that's not something that I'm necessarily comfortable with doing but there are some older teachers I think who are trying to meet students on those levels um and I think it's had solid results in terms of like getting students to know when things are due or what they have to do or even like disseminating information that way Yeah, I mean, so it sounds like, I mean, you mentioned that a lot of students were um, initially were were very happy about the idea of having online learning because they can play video games and watch Netflix and stuff like that. But then sort of as this has gone on, um, and as you said, for the, uh, unfor- for the foreseeable future, it will continue to go on, uh, students maybe, it sounds like they're kind of missing the the camaraderie or the community that um, the in-person classes and just, I mean, going to an institution, like physically going to an institution, uh, it sounds like they're missing that Yeah, definitely, because, right, right, academics, well, more than anything, this has shown us that academics are just a small faction of what public schools offer children and their families, because you have to think about the social aspect you have to think about the social, emotional, mental health aspect because a lot of students would come to school and escape things that were going on at home, but now you don't have that kind of luxury. And then you have students who are still um, relying on school for meals, like breakfast and lunch, which the school is obligated to supply in order to have the time with remote learning count as school days because that's one of the criteria that you have to meet 
Yeah. Oh wow. Wait. So so the school. Wait. The school is still supplying. Lunch yeah, they don't the deliver students? the lunch or anything, but it's available for families to pick up in the event that they need food through the school. Do you have any like? I don't know if this is appropriate to ask, but do you do you have any idea like how many lunches are? I have being no idea that daily? that was never closed, but it's just yeah. in order to have the days count, it's like yeah. you need to do three things: like account for teacher time, account for student learning, and then provide students with meals. How have you? How have you been managing your own poorly? <laughs> Um, wh- <laughs> um, so what what has worked for you and what hasn't um, I mean what's worked for me is trying to balance my time a little bit more I mean I know we talk about time management with teaching 8th graders that and then you see that in college but that really never goes away for anybody like you, the rest of your life you're going to manage your time like you got 24 hours in a day how are you going to use them so for me, it was just trying to find a balance between right. sitting at a computer from the time I woke up until almost like the time I went to sleep and grading or preparing assignments or on the exact opposite, the days where I couldn't do that, like I would just be sitting on the couch, like not able to get up, not able to do anything to find that kind of motivation. And so now it's got to be a balance um, for me. And I think the thing that's helped the most is the weather is starting to change a little bit. So I'm able to get out. And even if it's just to take a walk or to ride my bike, um, I've started running again. And that's been really useful because it just breaks up my day and it gives me a little bit of time of self-reflection. I think that is the most right. important part of my day. It's beco- it's becoming that anyway, because I could just step away and engaging my body, giving my mind a break. Um, so that's worked for me, but it also just depends on people who approach it from such different, not only backgrounds, but like mental health backgrounds. So if you are already struggle with mental health issues, this is probably really, really exceptionally challenging. Um, so I, sure. I would say to people, you just have to find what works for you. So whether that is like going outside and doing something, or if it's just journaling, or if it's sitting down and watching like a TV show for an hour and taking a break from whatever you're doing, it's not going to be a one size fits all. What, what do you predict will happen with online education in the future or maybe in education in general? Um, post-pandemic so what what do you think it will look like how will it have changed and i know you said and and in the news they have been saying that it's quite possible that the will come the virus will come back in the fall after the summer um so you can maybe take that into consideration with your answers but how do you think education and maybe specifically online education will change or have been affected uh, post-pandemic? Well, I think kind of what I was saying, students, teachers, school districts in general will just be more prepared or maybe have these kinds of like pandemic drill days, like you have a fire drill, um, just so that students 
and teachers have the opportunity to practice within a controlled setting as opposed to what happened this time around where it was just like it felt like complete chaos um and i do wonder if teachers will incorporate more technology because all you have right now is time to sort of look at resources and find things educational tools to help your practice or if the moment that you get back into the classroom a lot of like more old school teachers will just go right back to like lecturing pencil paper books as opposed to utilizing technology um and then for like strictly online classes i don't i don't necessarily know that that would shift at all i think that will just stay the same if anything those people are probably very prepared we're a lot more prepared in terms of how to deliver content um, remotely. Yeah. Yeah. Colin and I were sort of discussing this when I talked to him uh, because I, I, I've been trying to read um, a lot of the, I don't know, op-eds or whatever about written by teachers and professors about this transition and a lot of it is like overwhelmingly negative, um, you know. Be, but you know, I think that was because it was, it, it by necessity, it was a haphazard tran- transition, right? Um, but there's been so much negative negativity lodged at it, and you know, teachers and professors complaining they don't have the administrative support, and like that students are kind of you know, disoriented in a number of ways from this. So um, I f- the, the way that the those articles are putting it, it doesn't really bode well. F- it doesn't give you a good impression, I guess, of, of the future of online education. But, uh, you know, I, I think people are sort of, I think people need to sort of wait and see how it pans out and how it continues because it sounds like it was really chaotic for you and your colleagues and students and everybody in the beginning. But uh, I think as you mentioned earlier, like you've gotten into a routine and everyone's a little bit more comfortable with it, even though they might be, you know, missing that in-person interaction or missing that in-person community of the school. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think online learning, online education in general is for a very specific faction of the population so maybe students who need to take one additional course to graduate on time like that was me I took one online course in my life it was just so I could graduate from my projected um date because I wasn't short like the four credits but then I think beyond that people who take online classes are those who are working full-time and have and that enables them to do the work at their own time at their own leisure so i don't know beyond that who really prefers online learning to uh face-to-face in brick and mortar learning right yeah so so i guess then the argument is you know most likely or maybe that most people who take online courses or maybe exclusively online courses are non-traditional students or students just looking to, um, you know, make up a couple of credits or something like that. Yeah. Do you think that's right? 
yeah. Okay, so then, I mean, largely those students will be just continuing online learning. Yeah, anyway, but that regardless. means that I do have a lot of students yeah. who maybe are not, they don't love it, but they're not adverse to it. And then a, a smaller faction within that, a smaller contingency who really, really love it. And when I say, like, do you miss school at all? They say no. Um, but it's mm. not over, it's not the overwhelming majority. It's just like a select few students who feel as though they excel being able to complete work when they want outside of a school setting with no distractions. You're not worrying about social aspects. Um, so it is interesting. Like, it'll be interesting to see if maybe those kids pursue digital degrees as opposed to, to um, going to a school and living on campus or something. And if, yeah. Yeah, because you got to think perhaps. like the amount of money that you're saving and then you could work a full-time job while getting your degree. So I don't know. Right. That's, that's one thing that Colin touched upon. I mean, his, his argument was like, you know, there's going to be a certain contingent of the population who is going with that, the, the cost saving aspect of online education is going to be much more appealing to them than the possible, uh, um, effect on negative effect on quality that someone might have or, or, or uh, online education might have. And so, you know, we kind of discussed maybe the trade-off like, okay, well maybe we pay more to, to attend a university and university courses in person because the perception is the quality is higher and you're getting, you know, that sense of community and belonging and all that. Uh, all those external factors as well but then on the other side it's sort of vice put vice versa not all the time i'm sure that there are a lot of high quality online educational programs but vice versa it may be that the cost the the savings is is more appealing than maybe the lack of quality uh, compared with traditional learning environments yeah, and I mean, I think people. that circles back to the uh, question that you had asked me initially, one of the first questions, like about demographics. And I think that will play a much bigger role in that kind of determination, that kind of decision in, in the future, maybe. Like, if you're a student who doesn't have the luxury to go to school full-time and not hold a job, maybe you you opt for the cheaper, but lack of community, that, that route, it's hard to say. Well, okay, so I mean that that leads quite well then into the last question. Um, so you can touch on that on managing your own stress or something else. But what is your advice for teachers and students out there who are struggling with a transition from in-person classes to online classes? So it can be something related to what we were just discussing with stress management, or it could be, you know, handling you know, class management issues or handling and exploring, investigating new kinds of educational technology to use? Well, I think anything you have to know when to draw the line for yourself. So you can't just not do anything like the students that I was saying who just plays video games all day. That's not really an option. You want to try to engage and then you want to try to engage for as long as you can to the point where it does not become overwhelming or stressful. But what I've been saying to 
a lot of my university students who have reached out to me about their own mental health or stress levels is you got to put yourself and your family before academics. And that's really what I think it comes down to. So obviously you have things that you need to hand in, you have things that you need to submit before the end of the semester. But if you're not in the right headspace, you need to get yourself there before you can really engage and work meaningfully. And so again, whatever that looks like, people are starting to like cook or garden or paint or try to do things that are very self soothing or therapeutic. Like you could download apps for exercising or yoga. Um, so anything that sort of like moves your body or mind in a way that doesn't have to do with academics or technology is probably good for a portion of the day. And then you can get back to what you need to, to finish, but that work's going to be there tomorrow. So take what you need today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Quorum Teaching. Please follow Quorum Teaching on Spotify in order to hear future episodes about how other teachers and students around the world are reconciling with changes in education during the age of COVID-19.